0: I'm Linda Holmes.
1: And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour.
2: Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown
0: on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, Paula, this is interesting. What do you got? Researchers in Ohio found that when it comes to removing warts... Just using duct tape turns out to be way more effective than the old freezing off method.
3: So, what do they put duct tape over the mouth of anybody who goes ew warts?
1: Well, that, that wouldn't be a cure. That would be that would alleviate some of the <laughs> symptoms, which is people finding you hideous out loud.
3: What, uh, so, what
1: so what do you do with the tape? You t- you put the tape on the wart. It says that you have to put a, you, you do have to do this for two months, which <laughs> to me seems like a very long time to be wearing duct tape on your genitals.
3: What's your cutoff date for duct tape on your genitals Uh, usually?
1: Recreationally, six days at the most.
3: Yeah, 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 Yeah. two months. No, these are, I don't think these are
1: genital warts actually. I think they're, I think they're real warts, Um, but you use duct tape, duct tape.
3: You just put duct tape.
1: Yeah, duct tape. It's not just for kidnapping anymore.
3: (laughs) I I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of it. I used to think it was duct tape. Like, and I couldn't understand why anybody would tape a duck. Ah, uh, because the truth is when they know they're being recorded they won't speak openly
1: yeah I think I, th- I think that's probably true and here's something interesting it's another recent study it found that duct tape does not actually work very well when taping up ducts
3: really it doesn't work on ducts but I imagine some sort of wart cream would work on a <laughs> <duck>. <laughs>
1: From NPR, it's live from the Poundstone Institute, where we put on our thinking caps, but they never seem to fit right. On today's show, should you sleep with your dog? No, not like sleep with your dog, but should your dog sleep in bed with you? And if so, should you be the big spoon or the little spoon? And sorry about this, but we talked to a psychologist who studies apologies. She tells us we should be sorry for saying, I'm sorry. Plus, actor and environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. talks about the coal-burning hot tub he just installed in his backyard. Okay, not really. He helps us figure out whether Genghis Khan was, in fact, the greatest environmentalist ever. I'm Chief of Research Adam Felber, and now, here's your host, the director of the Poundstone Institute, Paula Poundstone!
3: Thank you. And welcome everybody to the Poundstone Institute, where what we don't know could fill a podcast. Where does our quest for knowledge begin today, Adam?
1: Well, we're gonna find out all about sleeping with your dog. Uh It's an age-old question. Should the dog sleep in the bed, or should the dog sleep on the floor? You have an opinion on that? I thought you
3: were gonna say, in the crib. (laughs) Well, I reverse it, personally. I sleep on the floor. That's right, you do. I do sleep on the floor. But you don't have
1: a bed for your dog to sleep in, do you?
3: Uh, no, my dog sleep on the floor with me uh, on top of the blanket that I sleep on.
1: Well, we're going to find out whether you're doing the right thing right now.
3: I know I'm doing the right thing because I feel good.
1: Let's see what science says. We're going to get a definitive answer. On the line with us is Lois Cron, a sleep medicine specialist at the Center for Sleep Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, who studied this very question. Lois, Welcome to the Poundstone Institute.
3: Well, thank you. Hey, Lois.
1: So, Lois, you tested whether dogs should sleep in the bed or on the floor. And before we get to the answer, were you concerned with whether the human sleeps better or whether the dog sleeps better?
0: Well, good question. We were looking at the human sleep, but we could monitor the dog sleep as well.
1: How how could you monitor the dog sleep?
0: We uh, had the dogs and the humans wear activity monitors so we could tell if they were moving or not and therefore be able to tell if they were sleeping or not.
3: Did you say a Tiffany monitor?
0: Activity
1: monitor.
3: Oh, I thought you said a Tiffany monitor, like you (laughs) bought it at that fancy (laughs) store in Rodeo. (laughs) And I was thinking, geez, Lois, you could have brought your study in for cheaper.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So there was an activity monitor for a dog, you're saying?
3: Yes,
0: something worn on the dog's collar that tells us if the dog is moving or not.
1: And what did you call that thing?
0: That's called a fit bark.
1: Of of course it's called a fit bark. Yeah. Okay, so um, they both wore activity monitors. America is ready for the answer. Lois, what's the verdict? Do we sleep better with or without the dogs in the bed?
0: We sleep better with the dogs out
3: of the bed. Oh, 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 the way you worded that. You took me so right down to the edge. We yeah. slipped it up with the dogs, and I was so excited, and then out of the bed. Yeah, right. Why? Why, Lois? Well, you know, we had big dogs, little dogs, big beds,
0: little beds, but on average, having the dog out of the bed is the better idea.
3: I just asked you why, and you told me the size of the bed, Lois. <laughs> I'm beginning to be a little suspect of this study, <laughs> Goldilocks.
0: You know what, dogs can be wherever they want on the bed. Some are on the pillow, some are at one's feet. It's um, a whole variety of different arrangements.
1: And and people sleep better when the dog is not in bed with them? Correct. Especially if it's not their dog.
3: (laughs) Oh, man, there's nothing worse than having like a doggy door and just neighbor's dogs come in. Right. Sleep in your big bed, sleep in your little bed. Uh, Lois, but you still didn't tell me why. Why do people sleep better with their dogs not in the bed?
0: Well, dogs certainly can move during the night or refuse to move during the night. Oh, yes. Okay,
3: I have had that, to be totally honest. Right. And I curve around them.
0: You curl around them?
3: Uh, yeah, well, I sort of, yeah. If, like, my dog Ramona won't move... I have two German Shepherd mixes. And if Ramona won't move from, like, my feet area, then I just sleep kind of curved around her.
1: <laughs> Lois, help me give Paula some advice here. What should she do? She doesn't have a bed, but should she put the dog a little further away or what?
3: Well, my question is, how big is the dog? It's a German Shepherd mix, so she's fair, about 70 pounds. Oh, yeah, that's a good-sized dog. Um, Thank well, you. Well, you know, in that
0: case, the dog might be taking up precious real estate.
3: No, Lois, I don't have a bed, so we just use my whole bedroom floor. <laughs> Uh, That might be another issue.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's there's anybody in your study like Paula. Okay, but this is interesting. According to your research...
3: You're not just researching, you're judging, Lois. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Lois, do you have pets? I do. And what kind?
0: We have a golden retriever and a cat.
3: All right, if you have a golden retriever, it's got to be in the bed with you. I must admit it depends on the time of year. Winter, yes. Summer, no. Exactly. Oh, I feel the same. You know, there's nothing like two German shepherds uh, uh, in the winter and I don't spoon with them. I like my back to be against their back for two reasons. One is then I know where they are. Uh-huh. <laughs> And the other is, it, yeah, it's, war- it's a warm like a thing. Heating pad, yeah. 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 I mean, like cats who... my? I have 14 cats, Lois. And um, go but ahead, But she doesn't judge. like to talk go about it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, but uh, the cats don't sleep with me. I used to sleep out on the living room floor with them, and then they started peeing on me, and I said, forget it. Uh, I think it was... A, it's like a territorial thing. And... Uh, All right, I'm going to tell you a terrible story. This will be cut out, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay, so one morning, uh, uh, it was a Sunday morning, I believe it was, pretty Uh early, and uh, uh, my phone rang, and I got up to answer the phone, and as I stood there uh, holding the portable phone against my ear, I realized cat pee was dripping out of my (laughs) ear, and it was Mo Rocca was on the phone. It was Mo? Yeah. Yeah. And I co- I mean I didn't I couldn't tell him, so I just continued the conversation <laughs> like oh. there was nothing odd going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we traced
1: the pee. It's coming from inside <laughs> the phone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> poor Mo. No, it wasn't poor Mo, it was poor me. Oh, that's right. I so wanted to, you know, keep up appearances that I, I, I just I just didn't feel comfortable saying, Mo, can I call you back? A cat has peed in my ear. <laughs>
1: I'm going to kind of loop this back around to science now. Um,
3: What's so, not science about
1: that? Everything. Lois, what are the I,
3: odds of my ears still working after a cat beating them?
1: Well, that, that would be a, a ground for inquiry, I would suppose. Lois, according to your research, dogs know what they're supposed to do, and they can tell when it's bedtime. Is that true?
0: Well, you know, dogs can certainly be trained. And when someone starts to brush their teeth, dim the lights, put on special clothes, they seem to settle down and know that it's time to be quiet and lie still. Well,
1: that's cool. What about cats? Same sensitivities? I
0: think cats are, you know, a
3: completely different issue. (laughs) Well, cats are nocturnal. Right. So when they see me putting on pajamas, they go, you know, we're going to have an extra place to pee soon. (laughs) Well, uh, Lois, I want to thank you so much. I'll tell you something. I'm not going to let my dogs listen to this episode. (laughs) Uh, Because I like having them with me, but thank you so much. We appreciate your research, and thanks for joining us on the Poundstone Institute.
1: Lois Kron is a sleep medicine specialist at the Center for Sleep Medicine at the Arizona Mayo Clinic. Lois, thank you so much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute. You're welcome.
3: (laughs) Does anybody here sleep with their pets? Yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I think she's wrong. Did, is there anybody here who has a pet that wants to sleep in your bed and you won't let it, like a goldfish or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, does anybody have, like, a dog or a cat that wants to sleep in your bed and you keep shooing it away? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes because, well, she was saying it's hard to sleep
2: sometimes with them in the bed, yeah. and I was thinking that makes sense because sometimes I have to be really still when I don't want to but wake them up because then if they wake up, i got to take them out. Mm-hmm. So, like, even when I'm like, I still want to be asleep, but I'm kind of awake. I can't move, and I gotta. You,
3: you still want to be asleep.
2: Yeah, but you're like you kind to roll awake. over and go back to sleep, but, oh. like, the dog's gonna wake up, and then you, everybody's gotta get up and go up for a walk.
3: Oh, everybody's gotta get up. Yeah. yeah. Once,
2: once they're awake, the whole
3: house is up, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, you know, That's I don't give in to the walking it. thing the way you do, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your phones pay for it. <laughs>
3: No, I just, say it. I just say to them when they get up in the morning, I'm like, down! <laughs> We're not done with this sleep thing! Down! It seems to work just fine, ma'am. You should try that. What kind of what do you have? We'll have one shih tzu who would sleep through anything. In fact, the earthquake right through it.
2: But uh, the, the other one is up and at them early. She's a uh, border collie mix.
3: Oh, border collie mix. Yeah. yeah. Shih tzus are great. They're lazy. Sleep. Yeah. Sleep. I couldn't She'll have a shih tzu because I just long. don't want to say that name. <laughs> There's just something about it that sounds wrong. Uh, uh, Yeah. The Sue part, probably. Yeah. Here at the Institute, we don't just talk about other people's studies. We also conduct our own, which is why every third member of our live audience is a placebo. (laughs) We're also surveying our audience
1: today asking if you've ever given someone like a waiter or a cabbie no tip based on bad service. And what did they do to deserve it? How about you, Paula? You waited tables. You ever get stiffed?
3: Well, I used to work the graveyard shift at uh, the International House of Pancakes on the Orange Blossom Trail in Orlando, Florida. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, Your moans You're not even imagining how awful it was. Um, and this old guy would come in practically every night. And he would (laughs) sit down at a table and order coffee and I would serve him to the best of my ability. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I was always polite and nice to the guy as far as I know, and and then he would call me over. See, I don't think he thought it was a bad tip. He would call me over and warmly press a dime into (laughs) my hand. He would be like, I got something for you. And I, and I think he expected me to be surprised every time as well and so I would try <laughs> to respond to it in the fashion in which it had been given it, the same
1: spirit yeah exactly
3: yeah. so I would try to tear up <laughs> and, and, and I would say I, I would i make like a little speech I'd go you know I want to thank uh, everyone who made this possible <laughs> uh, it's you know uh, uh, the, sh- the chef uh, he had a vision <laughs> You know, you don't earn a dime like this by yourself.
1: <laughs> a dime has many fathers.
3: Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, poor yeah. Poor old guy so so I probably
1: felt like he invented tipping.
3: Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I remember that I also did get stiffed a lot, but I don't remember getting stiffed the way I remember receiving the dime. <laughs> well, our posse of grad students is in the
1: back right now crunching the numbers, and we'll hear about your bad tipping stories, audience, later in the show.
3: Okay, Adam, let's continue our search for knowledge. What are we gonna learn about so we can forget it in a couple of hours?
1: We're gonna look into the science of apologies. Paul, are you a big apologizer? I'm sorry? Are you a big apologizer?
3: Uh, Yeah, actually I am. Oh yeah? I do, I apologize a lot. And now I bet ya I'm about to find out that you're not supposed to apologize to your dogs in bed.
1: That's exactly what we're about to find out. Our next guest has conducted a study about apologies and found out that sometimes when we say, I'm sorry, we actually make things worse. Dr. Gilly Friedman is a postdoctoral researcher at Dartmouth. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the Poundstone Institute.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So Dr. Friedman, or Gilly, if I may call you such, uh, under what circumstances does apologizing make things worse?
2: So we found in our studies that when you apologize in the context of a social rejection, it actually makes the person feel more hurt.
1: A social rejection. So Mm -hmm. if I say, I'm sorry, you can't come to my party, it's actually worse than just saying, you can't come to my party?
2: That's exactly what we found. Um, So when we had people write out rejections, when they wrote rejections that included apologies, the people receiving those rejections, said that they felt more hurt and less accepted than when they had rejections that didn't have I'm sorry in them.
1: Now, why is that? What What is it about saying I'm sorry when you're rejecting somebody that makes it worse?
2: We looked at that because um, we were really curious what was happening, and we found that if I reject you and I apologize, you're going to feel like you have to forgive me, but you don't actually feel forgiveness.
3: Oh. So essentially
2: what we've done is... I've first rejected you, which is really unpleasant, and then I've made you feel like you have to say it's okay when it's not.
3: Um, hi, Gilly. It's me, Paula. It, uh, hi. Sorry I didn't say that earlier. No, you uh, don't have
1: to apologize.
3: Did. D- d- uh, <laughs> d- I mean.
1: Now you've just made her feel terrible.
3: So. Oh, I'm so sorry. And worse. Um, <laughs> uh, um, Gilly, but what I don't understand is so it required some acting then on the part of the recipients. Because they the... had to pretend that they were receiving a rejection when, in fact, they were not receiving a rejection.
2: Yes, they had to imagine what it would feel like. in You that know, situation. maybe
3: a better way to run the study, Gilly, <laughs> would have been to go to like a high school dance. <laughs> that would be a great place. Yes. You know, there's a lot of drama flying around that That's place right. to begin if there's with. Right. That's one
1: thing those kids need. It's to focus a little more on humiliation.
3: Yeah. <laughs> what made you want to do this study?
2: Well, there's been a lot of research on social rejection in my field, social psychology, and a lot of it focused on how it feels to be rejected, and as you might imagine, it feels really lousy
1: to be rejected.
3: And And they had had to do research on that? Well, let's find out about
1: the research. Can you tell us about some of the rejections you tested? Was it all sort of like, it's not you, it's not, it's me, or were there other types of rejections?
2: So when people wrote out the rejections, it really ran the gamut of things like, it's not you, it's me, to just saying, I don't want to hang out with you, to people coming up with elaborate excuses as to why they were rejecting the person. So, for example, one of them was a roommate situation. You've been living with someone for a year. They want to live with you for the next year. You really don't want to live with them. What do you say? Uh And people would say things like, well, my father has a congenital heart condition and I can't live with you anymore because I need to be near him to take care of him. So it really ranged. Wow. Uh
1: And if if you do that, then you have to be the one who moves out.
2: Yes. So we we really at a lot of rejections, and we were concerned about this idea that you brought up, Paula, that they were only imagining how it feels. So in our second set of studies, we had people get rejected in the lab um, to see how Get rejected in the lab?
1: Like, what did they get rejected from?
2: So they, we have participants come in, and they interacted with someone else who they thought was a participant, but it was really one of our research assistants. And they had a nice, friendly conversation. The, other, the research assistant engaged them in this talk about their classes and that type of stuff. And then the experimenter would come in and say, okay, to the research assistant, um, we're going to let you decide if you guys work together on the next task or not. And at this point, the research assistant would say one of two things. He or she would either say no, I'm sorry, I don't want to work with you, or no, I don't want to work with you. And they were instructed to say it in the same tone of voice, same facial expression, all of that. So they turned, they said this to the person while looking at them. Wow. Um, so that's how we rejected them in person. Do and you then you work we
1: at the school see- for advanced
3: cruelty? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? As a grad student, right, how many studies have you heard about where they've lured grad students in And they've told them that they're working on A study when, in fact, they're working on B study. Yeah, when are grad
1: students going to wise up?
3: Right, exactly. You know, (laughs) um, uh, you're probably too young to remember this, Gilly, but there was a television show many years ago called uh, Candid Camera. Mm -hmm. And it was such a part of American culture that when something would go wrong... I think most of us would for a second stop and look around for the camera. It was like such a regular thing that you thought like, oh, I'm being punked here somehow. So grad students must never go into a room without a certain guard up, I would <laughs> think, right? And Even when they're told to go meet with a researcher, they must be like, what? It's not possible. It's (laughs) Um, it's a rejection study, isn't it? It's
1: one of those rejections. I get it. I'm going to act really wounded. Gilly, did you find the same thing with with the in lab stuff? Was did the apology make it worse there too?
2: It did, but we didn't look at hurt feeling. We didn't test specifically hurt feelings there. We tested aggression, and we found that the people who had been apologized to aggressed more against the rejector.
3: In what way?
2: So there's this measure used in social psychology where you have someone. Um, use hot sauce as aggression. And what you do is you say, here's this cup, put as much hot sauce in as you want. That other person, in this case the rejector, is going to have to drink everything in there. By the way, that person doesn't like spicy food. And so you look to see how much hot sauce they put in the cup. Obviously no one actually drinks this. Um, But it's been used as a measure of aggression because obviously we can't have people, you know, physically aggressing against each other in the lab. Well, right. I
3: think you can if you want to get definitive results. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This seems like a really weird world that you're yeah. in there,
1: Gilly. Yeah, but Gilly, people are always looking for a way to let people down painlessly. Is there such a thing as a painless rejection that you found in the lab?
2: We haven't found a painless rejection. Um, I think rejection is is generally going to hurt to some degree. Uh-huh. But I, I think that we can find ways to minimize that hurt through language and other adjustments that we can make.
3: Okay, so well, I'm going to run... we s- tried to minimize it by saying sorry. And you made and it worse. And then it turned out it just made it worse. <laughs> yeah. You, you know who I think is behind a lot of rejection corporately? is hot sauce companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. you got to follow the money, Gilly. Okay. <laughs> the rejection
1: industry is fueled by big hot sauce.
3: Yeah, big hot sauce, exactly. Yeah.
1: Uh, Gilly, I'm going to run some rejections by you if that's okay. And you can, maybe you can tell us, based on your research, which one would make someone feel worse? Oh, I can try. <laughs> okay, so so which, which would make somebody feel worse? I'm sorry you can't come to the birthday party. Or, yes, it is your birthday party, but you still can't come. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know... I wish we had tested something like that.
3: <laughs> okay. uh, you know what? I'm pouring a big old thing of hot sauce right now.
1: <laughs> how about, I'm sorry you can't share my sandwich versus, I'm sorry you can share my gefilte fish.
2: <laughs> you know, I think that depends on how much the strange person likes gefilte fish. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. That's, yeah. that, that's yeah. the yeah. right answer.
1: Gilly, have you been rejected? Um, and had, do you handle it differently now that you study rejection, or is it still just hurt every bit as much every time?
2: You know, I... I get rejected a lot. Ironically, my papers on rejection get rejected. <laughs> um, and, you know, it it hurts every last time.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I think part of it, you know, I think we all just have to concede that there is no good way of doing it. No. Well, listen, Gilly Friedman, we invited you to our show, and I am not sorry at all. <laughs> I'm glad. I want to thank you so much for for being here. I hope it doesn't make you feel worse or stir feelings of aggression and revenge when I tell you that we can't keep talking to you. (laughs) Um, But thank you so much. It was fascinating research, and I loved hearing about it. Thank you. Gilly Friedman is a postdoctoral researcher at Dartmouth. Gilly, thank you so
1: much for joining us at the Poundstone Institute.
3: You know, I, I read an article one time that was talking about the parenting that my generation of parents have done. Um, There was a picture of a girl gymnast with like tons of medals around her neck and my kids did gymnastics too. And the article said that as parents, we praised our kids too much and we told them they were too special and they got an award for everything that they did. And uh, and I'm reading the article and I'm thinking, boy, busted, I absolutely did do that. And so I called my kids and I said, (laughs) You are not nearly as special as I thought you were. (laughs) Hey, once you're done listening to live from the Poundstone Institute, check out this week's Car Talk podcast. It's where America turns for marital advice, psychological analysis, scientific theory, brotherly insults, and even some occasional car advice. If you need to feel better about the world, and don't we all... Spend an hour with Click and Clack on this week's Car Talk podcast. Listen to it on the NPR One app and at npr.org podcasts. Still to come, the results of our tipping survey. But first, let's welcome our visiting scholar.
1: Yes, we've come across a finding from the Carnegie Institution for Science that we believe needs a little more peer review. So, joining us now to help us out is actor and environmentalist, Ed Begley Jr. Ed Begley Jr., welcome to the Poundstone Institute. Oh, I'm very
4: happy to be here.
3: Hey, Ed, before we get to the study we need your help with, I've heard you have a bicycle-powered toaster. Is that really true?
4: I used to. Uh, I loaned it to Jackson Brown and Deanna Cohen. She does artwork out of found plastic that she finds in the beach, and it, her artwork, her art exhibition, her art installation is lit up by my exercise bike and a light.
3: Oh. And no, wait. So it's it, it, so, all right. So it's multi-purpose. It wasn't just for a toast.
4: Well, I got to be clear about it. There's no Lance Armstrong or Greg Lamont who can pedal to the tune of 14 or 1,700 watts. It's not possible. What you can do is you can pedal for 15 minutes at 200 watts, let's say, and then you can put it in batteries, which I had anyway because of my solar installation. So it's a real computation. You could light a light bulb all day from uh, pedaling 15 minutes hard at 200 watts. You could run a computer all day, or you could toast toast for two and a half minutes.
3: Well, you know what? If I told my kids they had to pedal in order to eat toast, they would just eat bread. You know, if I told them they had a pedal to make pancakes, uh, they would just drink the batter. (laughs) Uh, uh. Um, Now, you know, I always find you so gracious, and I'm such an admirer of your environmentalism and the way you walk the walk, and I've never found you pushy about any of this stuff, but are there friends that feel like they have to apologize to you for, you know what I mean, not living an environmentally friendly
4: life? I'm so clueless about it, but it's happened regularly. I've... I say to a friend who's come to visit me at the house, this house or the previous house, and they go, well, I'm going now. I said, good, I'll walk you out the car. No, I'm fine. No, come on, I'll walk you out. No, no, I'm good. And I get out to the car. And it's not like it's a gas guzzler. It's just like a mid-sized car. I, the Prius is in the shop, and I couldn't. I, don't, I normally don't drive this car. It's a loner, and I couldn't. get Just like a Chevy Malibu or something. I don't know what it is. It's, a, it's nothing. It's not a big gas guzzler, but they're like. Humiliated that, that, that I see them in that car.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Ed Begley Jr., it's fantastic to chat with you, but we've actually asked you here to help us review some research. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, here it is. The Carnegie Institution did some analysis that suggests history's greatest environmentalist might not be you or Al Gore. You ready for this? It's Genghis Khan. The argument is based on this. The Mongol invasions removed so many people from the planet <laughs> that cropland and forests were able to then recover and regrow, and they estimate that thanks to Genghis and his pals, 700 million tons of carbon got scrubbed from the atmosphere. That's the same as the annual demand from gasoline. So, first question. Genocide, good or bad?
4: <laughs> <laughs> bad on its face. Right away, <laughs> because, Yeah. You know, it seems kind of bad at first, and...
3: <laughs> it probably
4: is. So based on this, Genghis Khan, good guy or bad guy? Bad. Genghis Khan, bad.
3: Ah, oh, come on, Ed. You're only saying that because <laughs> you're afraid of the headline in Variety tomorrow that says, Ed Begley loves genocide. <laughs> come on, don't be such a wuss.
1: Yes, I mean, so, yeah. So, Ed, bottom line, Genghis Khan, not an environmentalist.
4: Well, you can't dispute the facts. The facts are that happened. I don't, I don't dispute that that happened. I think the research is good, He's still a bad guy. I I take no pleasure in those uh, scores and scores of people. How many people, millions of people killed? That doesn't sound good to me. I don't like that.
1: So, bottom line, Ed Begley Jr. says Genghis Khan is not an environmentalist, so we're sorry, Carnegie Institution for Science. The Poundstone Institute cannot corroborate your findings, which means you're just not real academics anymore. Please remove the elbow patches from your blazers (laughs)
4: immediately. Did that happen on my vote only, or did you have other votes uh, from your crowd at large there? Uh,
3: uh, No, Ed, you're the visiting scholar. It was entirely up to you. Yeah.
4: Oh, boy. So you just put a bunch of scientists out of work.
3: Yeah. You know what? When we tell them they're out of work, we're certainly not going to say we're sorry. (laughs) Ed, thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Paul, and thank you all. A pleasure to be with you. Ed Begley Jr. is playing the governor of California
1: in the year 2042 on the new series Me, Myself, and I this fall. You can see him in the upcoming film Future Man and in the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Better Call Saul and the new Christopher Guest movie, Mascots. It's true, he's in everything. Thank he's you, Ed. He's in everything. Thank you all.
3: Keep up the good work, Ed.
1: All right, the results are in. We have asked you, have you ever given a bad tip or no tip for bad service? And it turns out 35% of you, just over a third, have done that.
3: Wow. I'm so, I'm shocked by that uh, statistic. Really? Um, yeah. I I don't know. I I'm, My crowd is usually more one-worldy than that. Really? But maybe they were pushed. Yeah. Maybe they're, they were pushed no, really hard. No, they're the hard. kind of crowd where like, the waitress could be you know, on her iPhone for... 30 minutes totally unresponsive and then spill soup on their lap and they'd still be like yeah oh yeah but (laughs) you know she's gonna have a big phone bill
1: (laughs) (laughs) we'll leave her a little something well it sounds like 65 percent of our audience does feel that way
3: okay here we go here we have some samples have you ever refused to tip because of bad service yes if yes what happened had to get my own utensils, my own condiments, and my own iced tea. I left 10% and a note that I was splitting the tip with myself.
1: (laughs) Obviously, this person's first time at a cafeteria.
3: Yeah. If you like the Poundstone Institute, or at least don't dislike the Poundstone Institute, you can help other people find the show by leaving a review on our page at Apple Podcasts. You can comment on how entertaining the show is, or how surprisingly informative you find it, or that it's the perfect thing to drown out your neighbors having sex. Leave your review at Apple Podcasts. Well, I would say I'm sorry the show is over, but I don't want to make you feel even worse. The distinguished chair of the Poundstone Institute is Doug Berman. Our undistinguished chair is Ian Chillog. Our folding chair is Mike Danforth. Our chair apparent is Ken Lizebnik. Our chair Jordan is David Green. Our sunny and chair is Franny Kelly. Our breath of fresh chair is Lorna White. Our King Louis XVI chairs are Steve Nelson and Anya Grundman. Special thanks to John Cohen and his pals at Southern California Public Radio, Bonnie Burns and the folks at Nerd Melt. Our technical directors are Patrick Murray and Stephen Cologne with engineering from Ben Tolliday and Tony Federico. Live from the Poundstone Institute is produced by Urgent Haircut Productions in association with KPCC and is somewhat sheepishly distributed by NPR. You can visit us at poundstoneinstitute.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks to our head of research, Adam Felber. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week live from the Poundstone Institute. (laughs) serious? This is NPR...